You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. It just goes to show you how dependent we need to be upon God. Because apart from Him, you can do nothing. You can't change your nature. You can't overcome the world. And you certainly are not going to, in your own strength, be able to defeat the devil. We need outside help. And that outside help can only come from God. Amen. As sweet as they are, newborn babies are pretty much helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. They rely on others to feed, clothe, and protect them. In today's edition of In My Father's House, Pastor Mike explains that, like those babies, you are helpless to follow the Lord on your own. You can't overcome the world, control your own broken nature, or beat out the devil. You need outside help. You need God. He is able to do those things, and He wants to help you. He'll lift you up and help you walk in victory. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 as he continues his message, Out of the Graveyard. Then there's the devil. What does it say there in verse 2? Who is referred to the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Notice there in verse 2 of our text. And this would suggest that he is the one who controls the course of this world. He is, as I often mention, beating the drum that people are marching to. And it doesn't necessarily mean him personally, because remember now, he's limited. He's not like God on the present. He can't be everywhere at once, but nevertheless, he's still a very formidable uh, enemy. But because of his demonic influences over the world system, and also his associates, notice in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, and man, I can't wait to get to chapter 6. You know, when we go into probably the greatest chapter in all of the Bible, relatable to spiritual warfare. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So these are all in league or controlled by the devil. You see that? He can't be everywhere at once. But nevertheless, he uses these associates of his. 
these demonic influences and his power over the world system. You know, in John's Gospel in chapter 12, in verse 31, Jesus even refers to the devil in this way. He is the prince of this world, which would suggest he's the ruler of this world. It's true. And that's the very reason. You see, we lost it. Man lost the title deed to earth when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly enough, I want you to think about something. In the book of Revelation in chapter 4, when the church is already raptured and just prior to the seven years of tribulation, before God begins to bring forth the cataclysmic judgments against a Christ-rejecting world, Jesus appears upon the scene. And there is a scroll that is presented to him. What was that scroll in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and 5? I believe that it was the title deed to earth, which was lost through the disobedience of Adam and Eve back there in the book of Genesis. So what was lost is now going to be recovered during the seven years of tribulation as he purges the earth. Just something to think about, something to digest, try to wrap your head around it. I could be wrong. I doubt it, I might, I'm, but I might be. You know, there are many people that teach, I'm only joking around, but I could be wrong, but there are many uh, teachers who are absolutely in agreement with that interpretation. So anyway, Jesus himself refers to the devil as the prince of this world. Make no mistake about it. You know, we were also talking about this in one of our previous studies. If God ever opened our eyes to the spiritual warfare that's going on around us, it would blow you away. I know that it exists, but I don't, I don't want to see it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm not a ghostbuster, you know? And uh, I'll let God take care of that business. And, he's, and those demonic forces that have come against us, that plant these ideas and thoughts in our mind that bring us back to the way we were and the way that we think about and yearn for the way we were. And, uh, you know, i got to tell you something. Sometimes I feel like, you know, shaking someone who's a Christian, and they're talking fondly about the way that they were. They're like sort of bragging about how much, you know, how many drugs they used to do, or LSD, or, you know, fornication, or chasing women, or, or drunkenness, and all of those things. And I feel like, you know, you know, grabbing that person and shaking him. It's not something to be fond of. It's not something to be uh, brag about. Yeah, brag about. There's another word, but I can't find it right now. I'm having a senior moment. So, but nevertheless, Satan influences the lives of unbelievers and also seeks to be proud of and also seeks to influence believers as well. He wants to make people children of disobedience, as is mentioned here in our text. Children of disobedience unto God. And one of the ways, in fact, one of the chief ways that he goes about that is the telling of lies. In John's Gospel, in chapter 8 and verse 44, we are told that he is the father of lies. You see, the unsaved multitudes in today's world system disobey God. Why? Because they believe the lives of Satan. And I, do, do I need to go through some of those lies? You know what they are. I don't have to tell you. All of the crazy things. That, it's more evident today than ever before. And unfortunately, you know what? Some of those lies have actually crept into the church uh, today. 
So that's the second enemy. And then there is the flesh. Let's go back to our text. Notice there in verse 3. It says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. So the third force that encourages us to disobey is the flesh. Now, let me balance this out by saying, by the flesh, Paul does not mean the body. He's not talking about that. Because in and of itself, the body is not sinful. I mean, your flesh doesn't have a mind of itself, does it? It's not some kind of a separate entity that you have no control over, right? So the flesh that the scriptures refer to in a couple of different places refer to the fallen nature of man, the fallen nature that we are born with that wants to control the body and the mind and make us disobedient unto God. Let me ask you a question to kind of validate this claim. Why does a dog behave like a dog? Because he has the nature of a dog, right? You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. Okay, let me ask you another question. Why does a sinner behave like a sinner? And the answer to that question is because he or she has the nature of a sinner. You know, David put it this way in the 51st Psalm in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let me give you another cross-reference. In the 58th Psalm in verse 3, we are told that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. You know, think about that as a child. For those of you who are parents, who taught your kid to lie? Who taught your kid to be deceptive? It's within their nature. Did you do that? No, I didn't do it. They're hiding it behind their back. Did you take that? No, I didn't take it. And they're, as they're saying it, they're putting it in their pocket, right? Who taught them to do that? It's a part of their nature. And that's why they need the second nature. That's why they need to be born again of the Spirit of God. You see that? So, I mean, is it any wonder then that the unsaved person is disobedient unto God? They're controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three formidable enemies of God. They're the enemies of of our souls. So it just goes to show you, and this is the reason why I've gone a long way to make this point, it just goes to show you how dependent we need to be upon God. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. You can't change your nature, you can't overcome the world, and you certainly are not going to, in your own strength, be able to defeat the devil. We need outside help and that outside help can only come from God. Amen. Now, another characteristic of the unsafe person is that he is depraved. That he or she is depraved. Let's go back to verse 3. And notice right in the middle of verse 3, we are told that they fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So therefore, the lost sinner lives to please the desires of the flesh, and the wishes of the mind. Now go back to your B.C. days. Didn't that accurately describe who you were? Come on, truthfully, let's be honest. I mean, that's who I was. Well, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but that's exactly... It was all about the desires of my flesh and the wishes of my mind. And I was driven by those things. So his actions are sinful because his appetites 
are sinful. The word depraved doesn't mean that the unsaved person only does evil or that he is incapable of doing good, but it rather means he is incapable of doing anything to merit salvation or meet the high standards of God's holiness. For example, here's the case in point. Jesus said that the lost sinners do good to each other. In Luke's gospel in chapter 6, in verse 33, and this is a depraved person that Jesus is referring to here. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So a sinner does the same. He has the capacity to be able to do good. I mean, there are a lot of good people out there that do good things, charitable work, who aren't believers. But nevertheless, it, it doesn't mean when you, when you use the term depraved to describe them, you've got to understand that that also means that uh, they can't do anything to merit salvation. All of the good works that they do, you know, combined, would not add up for them to be able to merit salvation or meet the high standards of God's holiness. I'll give you another example of this. The lost sinner also does good things for their children. You know, they take care of their children, uh, they provide for their children, uh, they pay their kids' tuition. They're very faithful in doing that. Like, for example, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to, and the word evil there is, just can be translated sinner, and you being a sinner know how to give good gifts to your children, so they're right there, he's saying, you know how to give good, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him in context? But again, the point is, is that, you know, a depraved person doesn't necessarily mean that he can't do good things. So that's, where I'm, that's what I'm, I'm trying to establish here. But again, they can't do anything spiritually good to please God. Let me give you another example, one final example of this. Remember when Paul was getting the political runaround? He had stood before kings and governors, and then finally, which was in his right, as a Roman citizen, made his appeal unto Caesar. And so off he goes to Rome. And he gets on a boat, and this whole storm comes up on the sea, and you know how the story goes. He's shipwrecked, and uh, he makes his way to land, and on a particular island called Melita. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 28, in verses 1 and 2, the natives on Melita assist Paul after the shipwreck. And they exercised these good works towards him and those who were also in his company. And in that text of scripture, the Bible tells us that they showed us unusual kindness. And that, those are the exact words that are used in that text. Acts chapter 28, sometime during the week, check it out for yourself. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. But they still needed to be saved. They were still depraved, even though they assisted Paul, and they probably saved the lives of many. They were still depraved. Why? Because they couldn't do anything to merit salvation or merit God's high standards of holiness. And that's why, after a while, remember the, he was warming himself by the fires, and remember he took some wood and placed it on the fire, and a viper, a snake, or some venomous kind of a 
reptile uh, jumped onto him, and, and all of the natives knew that lights out for Paul. They knew that it was a venomous uh, reptile, and they were just waiting for Paul to kind of keel over, but he just shook it off into the fire, and nothing happened. And it provided a platform for Paul to preach the gospel. Why did he preach the gospel to him? Because he recognized that they were depraved and that they needed to hear the gospel of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? And so, then the final characteristic, and then we're going to close out our message, the final characteristic of the unsaved person is that they are doomed. And listen, I don't take any joy in proclaiming this to anyone. I suppose that you wouldn't be here unless you are a believer, but uh, there are times when people are invited to come and they may not have made a decision for Christ before, and they're not saved. They haven't secured their eternal destiny. So I don't take any joy in proclaiming this, but it's necessary. you got to let people know. I mean, you know, people need to know that they're drowning before they realize that they need to be saved. You know, before you can offer them a, uh, not a life jacket, a life preserver. You know, here's a person who's fallen overboard, and, uh, and they're flailing or in the waters, and they're going down for the third time. But if they don't recognize that they need to be saved, that they're going to drown, even though you've thrown overboard that life preserver, they're not going to grab it. And in a sense, that's what the gospel is, right? We need to let them know. We're responsible as believers uh, to do that. So notice the latter part of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as others. So the point is, is that, and this is the final characteristic of the unsaved person, they are doomed. By nature, they are children of wrath. By deed, they are children of disobedience. Now, the unsaved person who doesn't know, who doesn't believe in Christ, the truth is they're condemned already. In John's Gospel in chapter 3 and verse 18, you know, we ignore this. We're, you know, we're always thinking about John 3.16 which is probably the most well-known and beloved verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But, you know, read on. Read on. And in that same chapter in verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That's, that's what he has to look forward to in eternity. That person is condemned. Do you understand that? And, uh, and, and, and that's why it says there in verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others or everybody else. Listen, gang, the sentence has been passed, but God, praise the Lord, in his mercy, is staying the execution of the sentence. True, man cannot save himself. But God, in his grace, steps in to make salvation possible. You know, just go to verse 4 quickly. Just look at the first two verses. And I'm not going to get into this. I'm going to close it out in just a moment. But those two words, notice in verse 4, those two words, but God. And those two words make all of the difference in the world. You know, think about our condition. And if it wasn't for the love and the mercy of God stepping in, but God. So let me say that again. The sentence has been passed. We've already been condemned. 
But God in his mercy is staying the execution of the sentence. Yes, man cannot save himself, but God in his grace steps in to make salvation possible. What a difference those two words make. We don't have to live in a graveyard. God help us to receive of his love today. So, God performs resurrections. He reaches down to where ruined, miserable, trapped sinners are living. And he brings them to spiritual life again. He calls them, and his voice, which quickens the dead, brings them running to that which beforehand they both shunned and feared. Isn't that true? You know, let me just close with this one last thing. This is uh, something that was uh, quoted by George Whitfield, who was the great evangelist. And he compared this whole thing to Christ's raising of Lazarus. And I will close with this. He says, writing, Come ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave, with a great stone placed on the top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Well, I don't know if we should go that far, but... Oh, how he stinketh. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon your stupid heart. Perhaps, that's what he said, perhaps thou hast lain in this state not only for four days, like Lazarus, but for many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness, as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thy own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, which without all doubt have their proper place in religion. But all your efforts exerted will never so much vigor, will prove fruitless and abortive till, they, till that same Jesus who said, take away the stone and cried, Lazarus come forth, also quickens you. And so, apart from that quickening voice of God, there would be no hope for anyone. But because of it, even the worst and most determined rebel and sinner may be in my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. Oh, my heart. We're so glad you joined us today on In My Father's House for our continuing verse by verse study through the book of Ephesians. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Mike, please visit our website at harvestnyc.org. You can also listen online by going to the Resources tab, or you can find them on One Place and search for Harvest Christian Fellowship or Pastor Mike Fenizio. 
Viewing our recent services in their entirety can be an option as well through Vimeo. Just follow the link at our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Just search your favorite platform for In My Father's House. If you're ever in or near the Midtown Manhattan area and are looking for a church home, come visit us here at Harvest Christian Fellowship. We meet every week for worship, Bible study, and fellowship. It's easy to get here, and you can reserve your seat at our website. If you can't make it in person, that's okay. Join us on the live stream to participate in our services virtually. Just follow the link at harvestnyc.org. If you happen to have any questions for us, don't hesitate to give us a call at 212-247-1877. That number again is 212-247-1877. Or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram by following the links on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. We're so glad you took the time to listen in today, and we hope you'll join us again next time on In My Father's House.